Let's open our Bibles now. If you have them, let's open them to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 27. We're in the final week of Jesus' life, tracking through the gospel of Mark. You know that he entered Jerusalem to a king's welcome, but it has quickly turned into an absolute, all-out assault on this man, Jesus Christ, during this final week. The religious leaders are, they're launching Uh, questions at Jesus with the intent to capture him and to destroy him. It's that black and white. Um, You you remember last week, and if you missed it, I hope you listen online, Michael started us off in this particular section with a question around authority. By whose authority do you do this? You know, and he addressed that. Now, what's amazing to me is, and when you read this, (laughs) is that Jesus not only answers the questions, because he does that, But while doing it, he teaches. He cannot stop teaching. And he teaches us, you all, some of the most important truths in this time about the spiritual life. In fact, uh, we're going to look at two episodes today. And in these two episodes, uh, he he gives us what I'm going to consider two principles of the Christian life uh, that, that have everything to do with, quite frankly, they're at the very core of what it means to have your heart transformed, okay, in such a way that, that your life, literally, the way you live, is radically changed. Now, I don't know where you are today. Uh, some of us uh, in the room, you know, I, I know some of you don't know everyone. I don't know where you are, but I can tell you this, that, that God always desires that your relationship with him be ever deepening such that your influence for him would be ever increasing. That's just the truth for every person in here. A relationship that's ever deepening such that our influence is ever expanding. That's true for all of us. And in that, I, I got to say this, in that, you actually get the mission of our church, right? Why do we exist? Why, do, you know, why are we even here? Why, we're not just here just to, you know, to go through a ceremony with children and, and sing songs and now sit on the Word. We're here that we might deepen in our relationship with Christ and expand His kingdom and His influence. How do we say it? Proclaim Christ, mature in the faith, and give our lives away. I was talking with my son this week. Uh, he had called me about something and... <clears throat> struggling with some things. He's, he's at a camp this summer, and, and uh, we were talking about praying, and, and he said this comment to me. He said, Dad, you know, there's, uh, you know, we have no idea if God will answer that prayer. And I said, Darden, God always answers this prayer, because what we were talking about was praying that he would grow in humility, that he would grow in Christ. You know, I said, he always answers that prayer. Well, uh, there's a lot at stake for us as a church. I mean that when, when we look at these two principles, not just for you personally, but for us as a community of faith, there's a lot at stake. So we're going to pick up the story. Uh, I, I like to consider these questions grenades in a way, just get visually, because literally he, the, 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 the religious leaders come and just toss Jesus a grenade here. And, and Jesus, 
gently hands it back, you know, as we go through these. And the first one, I'm going to call it <clears throat> a question of ownership, okay? We're going to have two parts to the message. There's going to be a question of ownership, then I'm going to give you the second one in a moment. And the question of ownership is in verses 13 to 17 of Mark chapter 12. This is God's word to you and to me this Lord's day. Follow along in your Bibles. Then they, the religious leaders, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him, to Jesus, in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? I want you to notice they're asking a yes or a no, because they repeat it. Look at verse 15. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness, you might underline that word, very key for understanding and interpreting the passage, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. It's a question of ownership. The Pharisees, let me say this, ultra-conservatives. Ultra-conservatives. They are keepers of the law, okay? And then you've got the Herodians. Now, where do you think they got their name? From who? Say it out loud. Yeah, this is not a, a, a good guy. Now, these are Jews, but they do follow Herod, okay? You could not get two groups further apart. You know, what's this about? And the people who sent them did this explicitly, intentionally, because they want to put Jesus on, you know this, the horns of a dilemma. And, and so th- th- they go, and if Jesus says, uh, yes, pay the tax, the Pharisees are going to say, man, this guy cares more about Rome than God's law. But if Jesus says no, then the Herodians, right, they're going to say, oh my gosh, he's, he, he, someone called the Roman authorities because he's rebelling by not paying. You know, the horns of a dilemma, the picture is you've got two equally unlikable, detestable options. You can choose this and the horn will kill you. Okay, or choose this and the horn will kill you. And they believe they have Jesus on the horns of this dilemma. The text says they came in order to trap him. This is just a, you know, trivia, but it's, a, it's called a hapex legomen, which means trap. Is, it's only used one time in the whole Bible. So you got one word and they use it right here. And it means what you think. It means to use deceit, to lure an animal in, <coughs> excuse me, to the trap. Boom, the trap closes and we have him. So you see what they're doing to Jesus. And quite frankly, this tells us everything about their motivation. So don't think you can't ask Jesus questions. Just weigh your motivation, you know, if you're going to do that so, so that he knows their motivation. Lisa and I live in Cottonwood. Uh, some of you ha- have lived, lived there, and you know we, we live on Riverwood Drive, which backs up to the river, the Harpeth River. So behind us is a, a, is a you know, wall of trees, and then just down is the river, the Harpeth River. And you can imagine <coughs> we get a lot of wildlife, you know, in the backyard. And uh, we love it. It's wonderful. 
until the wildlife want to live with you in your house, and then you got a problem when they begin to come too close. Probably a year and a half ago, uh, we were having a problem with something, and I, I figured it was a raccoon, because in the mornings, our trash would be strewn about our driveway. Now, I thought it was a raccoon because I put the trash in a big container that's got a lid, and whatever it is, is opening the lid, and then pulling bags and just spreading stuff out. Now, also, you know, we've got a dog named Pearl. Pearl is a small, uh, smaller size cockapoo. And um, she's the run of the litter, and she's gray and white. And you know how dogs have that spidey sense? They can sense something outside. So, you know, I'd be in the house at night, at night and the dog's, Pearl's going crazy because she can sense there's something moving out there. And I'm thinking, man, if I let Pearl out, you know, this is not going to go well for Pearl. She's so small, et cetera. She'd go out in the mornings, just sniff everywhere, so I knew it was something there. So I got a uh, varmint trap from, from my neighbor borrowed one. You guys have done these, the love traps, L-U-V traps, you know. I put some peanut butter on the inside, they go in, they hit the little thing, they reach over and hit the thing where the peanut butter is, and boom, the door closes behind them. So I've got the trap out there, I've got the peanut butter set, and I go probably four days, I go out there, and the peanut butter's gone, but the door did not trigger. And I'm going, man, this is like a pickpocket, you know, dealing with here. And so I took this... uh, toolbox that my son had set there in the driveway from his truck, and I wedged the trap between a brick wall and the toolbox. Now, the reason I did this is so that the trap would not move. It wouldn't wiggle, because I was setting the trigger so that if, you, if that raccoon breathed on it, it was going to get him, but, it, but it couldn't move while he's walking. Does that make sense? It can't move while he's walking in. I go out the next day, nothing go into work. Hour later, Lisa calls me and she says, honey, the trap worked. And she sent me this picture. Show me this first picture. Amazing. I caught my dog. <laughs> and, and Pearl has got the shoulders of shame. You know how they go like, you can just see her just sitting there. Like, what have I done? I've trapped my, you got me dad. Now, here's why I show you that and tell you that story. Because the the, the Pharisees and leaders, they, they think they're going to trap Jesus, but what happens to them? They, they literally end up in the trap. You can take that down. They end up in the trap itself. It's a great picture of what happens in the story. He asked for a coin, a denarius. It's a day's wage. If you took out a penny right now, it'd kind of look like a penny. And you know how, how pennies have a, you know, Im- images and inscriptions on them? This one would have the image of the Caesar at the time, Tiberius. And so it would say on that little denarius, it would say, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And if you flipped it over on the backside, it would say Pontifus Maximus, which means highest priest. And, you know, he, he considered himself divine because he's the son of a divine father. And can you imagine how odious this is to a Jew? You know, that he's, he considers himself deity. They've been paying this tax, by the way. It's a poll tax. Everyone has to pay it. They take a, they take a census. How many of you are there? Then they know, okay, we're going to get this much money because everyone's got to pay it. Um, they've been paying it since 6 AD. So they've been paying this this long. Every time they pay it, what is it? It's a reminder. We're under oppression. We are an occupied people. We are slaves to Rome. Jesus' answer, of course, is yes, pay it. And immediately, I'm sure they're thinking, we, we, we have him. 
um, his, his yes was tied to this. Whose likeness is on it? Who, who made it? Because whoever's likeness is on it is the one who made it, and the one who made it owns it, so give it back to him. There's his reasoning. And without taking a breath, he says, and render to God what is God's. And you can see now, they thought they had him. Oh my gosh, we don't have him. And they stood back amazed. They didn't trap him, did they? Uh, just by, by way of application, just note this. It's not enough to be amazed at Jesus. I mean, you can w- think he's great, it's wonderful. It's not, quite frankly, enough. Now, the key to this is that word likeness. That's why I said you might underline it. You know, whose likeness is this? Now, we don't always think like this. You don't always think like this. But, you know, the, 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 the Jews, they, they, had a, they understood the story of God. And when he says whose likeness, they immediately went all the way back to Genesis one. So their, their minds go, wait, wait, whose likeness? And there we find Genesis 1, 26. God says, let us make man in our image, in God's, who's in his likeness. Same, the, the word, the, in his likeness, God made them male and female. In other words, Jesus says, okay, he, uh, Caesar made the coin, his image is on the coin, it's his. Give it back to him. God made you, God's image is on you, give yourself back to him. It's that simple. And they understood it. And the question for you and I is, when you look in the mirror, truly, now, that, whose image do you see when you look in the mirror? When you think about your mind, body, will, emotions, whose, whose, whose likeness is that made in you? Know, we often use the phrase, you know, that we're made in the image of God. And theologians can kind of move around this a little bit and come at it in different ways. But at, at its essence, I think we can say these things, and I was just looking at this again this morning. And, and there's maybe more, but when you look at who God is and how he demonstrates himself to be in Genesis 1, and then he says, in, in, in my likeness, I've, I've made you. We can say, you know, we're just take these categories. We are a creative beings. We, we make and can create. We're spiritual in nature. Uh, we, we communicate. We can reason. We are relational beings, and we are morally responsible. I'm telling you that the animal kingdom doesn't have all that, people, as much as, you know, my do- you love your dog, your cat, or whatever. They don't have. They're not made in God's image. We as human beings are. And the answer to that question, if you say, I look in the mirror and I see the image of God, I'm going to tell you something. If you believe that, the implications are massive. I put it in a principle like this. This is the first principle, by the way, okay? Because there's two principles. The first one is this. God's image in me means God's ownership of me. That's the principle. God's image in me means God's ownership of me. Uh, well, if God owns me, what do I render to God? It, it, we're going to cover this next week, but look at verse 30. Look at verse 30 in the chapter we're in, 12. Uh, note, he cites this passage. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's to give God, quite frankly, what, what do you mean render to give God what's his? Give him all of you. Heart, mind, soul, and strength. Giving your whole being, it's to, to give that and recognize that it's God's. Now, I'm actually 
going to invite you to do that in a few moments. It's going to make some of us maybe a little uncomfortable, but the second principle requires me to call you to not walk out those doors without some measure of choice or decision. I'm going to ask you to do that in a minute. Principle, God's image in me means God's ownership of me. The question of ownership, now let's go to the second part, okay? Question of ownership, now we're going to the second part, which is the great mistake. I'm going to call this the great mistake, and I just pull it right out of the text. Follow along in your Bible, starting in verse 18. Continue, some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Stop there and let me say this to you. That's the truth. Remember the book of Ruth? Uh, Boaz took Ruth and bore children. For it, it, This is the way that God commanded that the nation would remain a unique nation and inheritances wouldn't slip out the door and get over here to these other countries. It needed to remain in the family. So they're, they're absolutely spot on. Uh, as they say this, their, their example, though, is, uh, is, is what, what gets, actually gets me and it gets them. Notice the example. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Ray Stedman said that someone needs to find out what she's feeding them. Right, it's it's it is a, kind of a humorous story in a way. Last of all, the woman died also in the resurrection. Now we already know they don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe that you that, that death is not the end. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, "Is this not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God?" For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead or of corpses, but of the living, you are greatly mistaken. Several years ago, uh, someone sent me a, 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 some excerpts from a book, and uh, they had pulled out some, some transcripts from it. The book is called Disorder in the Court, and um, it is actual transcripts from court proceedings, you know, in... in uh, court settings where there's questions and answers, questions and answers. And uh, I want to read some of these uh, to you. This is, uh, it's, it's kind of entertaining to me, quite frankly. I'm not in courtrooms at all, but here's how some of these went. Uh, lawyers asking and then the witnesses responding. Question, this myasthenia gravis, does it affect your memory at all? Answer, yes. And in what ways does it affect your memory? Answer, I forget. Question, you forget. Can you give us an example of something that you've forgotten? 
You got to think about it for just a moment, right? This is, okay, trooper, question. Trooper, when you stopped the defendant, were your red and blue lights flashing? Answer, yes. Question, did the defendant say anything when she got out of her car? Answer, yes, sir. Question, what did she say? Answer, what disco am I at? <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, two more. I won't, I won't kill you. Uh, th- this is one of those, you know, I don't know. You do what you want with it. Question, you say the stairs went down to the basement? Answer, yes. Question, and these stairs, did they go up also? Last one, doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? Answer, no. Did you check for blood pressure? Answer, no. Did you check for breathing? Answer, no. So, then it is possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? Answer, no. Question, how can you be so sure, doctor? Answer, because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. (laughs) Question, but could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? Answer, yes. It is possible that he could have been alive and practicing law somewhere. Oh, gosh. Lawyers don't kill me. Now, you know, here's the thing. When you read this story, I, I kid you not, I, la- I, get a, I, get, I get tickled at this uh, seven husbands, seven... Jesus didn't laugh. Like, it's, it's, it's just not even... It's not funny to him. Why? Because they are making a mistake that he calls a great mistake. He says, you're mistaken. Then he says, it's a great mistake. And he didn't laugh because... We can make the same great mistake even today. Now, I'm going to get to that. Uh, Did you notice, though, the repetition of the number seven? And and it's literally the seven, the seven. Y'all in the Bible, you know, don't get overly crazy about this, but seven does have symbolic meaning, and the numbers do, and it means perfection. It means completeness and wholeness. In their eyes, this was the perfect argument. This isn't the first time they've argued with someone about, is there life after death? Is there a resurrection? And so when they would argue, they would always pull this one out. Well, how about this one? When the woman did, and they think they have, of course, they've never come up against Jesus. So what about the Sadducees? You know, it says they don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, they were aristocratic. They were powerful. They were generally uh, had a people of wealth. They only accepted the five, first five books of the Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the only thing they considered authoritative, okay? Those first five books called the Pentateuch. In those five books, they could not find resurrection and they could not find angels, And so they didn't believe in resurrection and they didn't believe in angels, which helps us understand a little bit why Jesus answers the way he did. He doesn't doesn't really answer their question. Instead, he points out their great mistake. And this is what we're going to come back to in a moment. The great mistake. They do not understand that the scriptures... Uh, They don't understand the scriptures and they don't understand the power of God. And I want you to notice this. He says, you are making one mistake. You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God, which means the scriptures and the power of God are inseparable. Okay, you can't separate the scripture from the power of God. 
And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to unpack that because we'll talk about that in our application in a moment. First, first notice he says about the resurrection, when they rise, not if they rise. And secondly, regarding the fact that the dead rise. So he says it's a fact that the dead rise. Y'all, resurrection is not in question. Now, he goes to a book of the Bible and quotes it. And wouldn't you know, he goes to one of the first five. Let me go to where the only one you believe, the only ones you believe, he goes to Exodus 3.15, where he quotes there that God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a, this is a beautiful picture of, any, of uh, the trustworthiness of Scripture, you all, that Jesus bases this argument on the tense of one verb. You think every word is not inspired. The tense of every word matters. I am. In other words, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for hundreds of years. They were dust. They were gone. Yes, physically. But God says, but I, I am right now, Moses. I am right now their God because they live. And you say, well, how can they be living when they've disintegrated? Uh, I've talked about this a number of times at Brentwood recently. I have it here. But let me remind you that death itself, okay, death is the separation of the soul from the body. Okay, when, when, you, when you die, and you will, please understand that your soul will be removed from your body, and in that instant, your body is, is dead. I mean, it's just, it's inert. It's going to dissolve. It's, it's literally going to happen. But all of us are made in the image of God with a soul that is the essence of who we are, and our soul never dies. See, that's the thing we, we forget, I'm telling you, even if you don't trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't put your confidence in his life, death, and resurrection, which is the good news of the gospel. If you don't do that, I want you to know you will live forever because every human being has a soul and it will live forever with God or apart from God. Is everybody with me on that? So death, you can't think of death as separation, separation from the soul, from the body. Now the New Testament is gonna teach us that there is coming a day when every, here again, every person's soul will be reconnected to their, their body. This is amazing. And, and again, it's not just for the Christian. It's not just that Christians experience resurrections and, resurrection and, and people who don't trust Christ, you know, don't. No, everyone experiences resurrection. Your soul will be, will be put back in your body. And the Christian will be resurrected to glory. And those who don't trust Christ will be resurrected to judgment. This is, this is what the Bible teaches. And this is where we can say well, they, that Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, they're alive. They live for their soul lives. He gives them one fact about heaven. And I'm fascinated by this because we have so many things out there now on heaven. And this is what heaven is. This is what it looked like. This, and we, 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 don't, we don't know a lot. And apparently Jesus... He didn't give a ton of information about this, but he gives one fact here that I think has tremendous implications. He says, in heaven, the, the problem for you guys is you don't understand, in heaven, there will be no marriage, uh, that, that we will be like angels. We're not angels. We will be like angels. How will we be like angels in heaven? You understand, in crea- at creation, a set number of angels God made. Angels don't procreate. They don't die. 
It's a set number. In that same way, you understand, when we're in heaven, then we don't, we don't procreate. We don't, uh, there's no marriage. We don't have children. Isn't it interesting? When he proves them wrong, he goes to the only, you know, one of the books they believe. They only believe the first five. And then he talks about angels, again, which he finds in the first five, and they don't believe in. Now, I'm not, this is a bit of an aside, but I just think it's important uh, as, a, as a bit of an exhortation to us. Uh, I said that, that the implications of just this simple statement, okay, whatever you, whatever you think about heaven, I want you to know this, there will be no marriage. Okay, so that's what Jesus, can we all agree on that? I mean, there's stuff we don't know, but Jesus just can't be any clearer. Well, I want you to think about what this means. It tells us that marriage is not the end-all, be-all greatest relationship in the world. Now, you know we hold marriage high, okay? So don't go there on me. Do you understand? It, it tells us there's something better. Um, it tells us that sex is not the greatest pleasure in the world. You know, when, when, a, when the Muslims think about what, what, ple- what glory is going to be like, what do they think about? He's going to have sex with virgins forever. See, that's where they go. Do you understand that there will be no sex in heaven. And all the guys are like, uh. You understand that you will not bear children in heaven, ladies? Those of, who, who've been able to conceive and bear a child, you know, it's got to be one of the greatest joys on earth, is it not? Amazing. But do you understand that you won't do that in heaven? And, and now y'all are going, man, what a bummer, Lloyd. You just tell. No, what I'm trying to help us understand is. There's more. There's a a relational intimacy. There's the pleasure beyond a... So many kids in the room, beyond sex. There's There's a joy beyond the giving of birth in heaven, which means that's greater than any shadow of it on earth. And to the degree that we think, These things that we do on earth are the best and this is the greatest. And we diminish the reality that, no, that's for heaven, you see. We live inappropriately in those things here. I'm not diminishing any of those things, but lifting our eyes to say there's more, which tells us the greatest relationship, the greatest intimacy and pleasure is intimacy with God. That's that's what we were made for. My, both of my parents have, have passed away. My mom passed away before my dad. And we said this about my dad when he passed. And, and we meant it. You know, there's that sense to which you go, you know what, dad's going to be with mom. And that's a wonderful thought. But please understand this. My mom and dad are not in the presence of, of Jesus now married. They're not but they are experiencing an intimacy, I believe this with all my heart, with God and with each other that transcends anything they experienced on earth. Now you go, that blows my mind. Well, it should, it should. That's what we were made for, which tells us one of the greatest gifts we have on the planet is Ladies, yes, to give birth to a child, but all of us can help give new birth to any person on the planet 
And that's the greatest relationship, to help someone come into a relationship with God that will be a relationship they enjoy, experience, and experience intimacy beyond description forever and ever and ever. All that because Jesus says there won't be marriage in heaven. Back to the great mistake. They do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. I said, you can't separate the scripture from the power of God. Lloyd, what do you mean by that? Well, if you boil down the Christian life, it couldn't get much simpler than this. What's the Christian life? It's to know God through his word and to experience his power through his word. You know, this is the Christian life. The word understanding here, that you don't understand, it's the Greek word yutha, it's O-I-D-A, it's the Greek spelling, but it's pronounced that way. It means to know. So, so you do not know the scripture or the power of God. It's, it's not just an intellectual knowing. All the students in the room, you're taking tests right now. And so you got to study and you got to know the answer. Okay, so you know the answer and you get a grade. That, that's not this knowing, by the way. This knowing is you know something and it affects how you live your life. You, are, you, you know something such that it changes you. Or it, it could be this, and here's the principle. Okay, I've had the first principle. The, the image of God in me means the ownership of God of me. Okay, here's the second principle. Your knowing scripture must not outpace your living scripture. Your knowing scripture must not outpace your living scripture. Scripture. Let me say it a couple different ways. Your studying the Bible must not get in front of your living what you're studying. Your uh, what we what we know of tr- principles, truths of the Bible uh, must be reflected in how we live it. James is going to say it like this. Let's just cut to the chase. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers. This is, this is what it means. So you, to, you, don't, you don't know the scripture or the, word or the power of God. This is, they go together. And that's why I'm gonna apply this in the way I am. You can close your Bibles. You won't need them for this moment. Um, I did wanna show you one last slide. Can you throw that slide up, the last one? I want you to know that raccoon did not get the best of me. I got him. And uh, that's the uh, back of Eric Hoffman's yard where I released it. Just kidding. Um, but, you know, leave the picture. But uh, this is silly, I know. But I want you to look at that picture for a moment. Do you understand that the religious leaders, while they think they are powerful, influential, living, that's really how they're living. They are bound by their thinking that, you know, if we do these things, God will love us. If we do this, you must do this and don't do that, I'll be acceptable to God. And that's how people, this is how people live. Actually, their Galatians says it, that they live in bondage. Uh, that's how people live who reject Messiah. That's what they reject, that Jesus himself has come to do what we could never do He lived the perfect life. He died the death that we deserved and he rose from the grave for God said, he satisfied my wrath against sin. 
He's done everything. And when you simply believe it, you simply trust he did it for you, then you understand the door flies open and you are free, as Paul says, indeed. You can take the slide down. Well, here's how we need to, I think, need to seek, at least attempt to apply this. And I want you to know when I ask you to do something in a moment, there are some of you in the room that don't need to do this. I just want you to follow your conscience. And it may be, it may be the greater measure of faith for you or, or, or integrity to, to not stand when I ask some people to stand. You, so you may be seated. I'm, it's, and I'm doing it because it's this serious. We're, we're just not here to, to play games and go through the motions of faith. We're here to be changed by God and be an ever-expanding influence for his kingdom in the world. And that means not allowing the, the knowledge of Scripture to outpace our application of it. So, where you're sitting, I, I want you to do it. Just look at your hands. I want you to look at the back of your hands and the front of your hands. Notice the, I mean, unique fingerprints, the lines, the what's underneath that skin, the blood that's flowing, the veins, the bones. Uh, look at, you know, if you've got a child in the room, I want you to look at your child or look at your spouse or look at someone, just glance, kind of weird, I know, people looking at each other, but just want you to look at the human being, the human beings around you. I want you to think about the babies that were here. Did you, I mean, when you think about these babies that were on their mother or, or, or dad's chest and the, that child. I want you to think about that, what that represented. Now, if you, and I mean this, if you believe that that child and that you yourself truly, that you're made in the likeness of God, I want you to stand. And I'm not gonna ask people to close their eyes and not be secret. I'm just gonna say, if you believe that, I, I really do. I want you to stand. And if you've remained seated, it's okay. You may be working through that. But if, if you believe it, stand. That you're made in the image and likeness of God. Not, and I, I hope I didn't pressure anybody to do that. I hope it's not peer pressure that would have you stand. But you understand what you're saying right now? I mean this. You're saying to God and everyone in the room, I am not my own. That his image in me means his ownership of me. Now, standing, you got to understand this. There is nothing then that the owner of you cannot require of you. Do you get that? He, 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 can, he can require whatever of you. Now, if you're standing, you're made in his image and you recognize that, that means you understand that he has a purpose for you. And that purpose is found in his word. And that means you're not just an organism that evolved and you're gonna die and go to dust, but you are uniquely gifted and wired to be on this planet to give God glory. And you say, well, I'm here to raise my family and have a job and retire. And, well, no, your greatest calling your wiring is to give God glory. What does that mean? To show the world what God is like. That's why you are on the planet. And you do it at your job or in your home or as a mom or a dad. If you're standing, it means this. You, have, you are saying, I render to God all that's God's. In other words, I, 
I will love the Lord God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what you're saying. By st- you see, it's staggering if you just hold that one truth. I don't care if you're a teenager in your 20s, or you're a child, or you're retired. It doesn't matter. You're saying God owns you. Now, I don't want you walking out of here going, man, God owns, God does own me. I, I've got to, I need to go love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and do this. Well, we do, but here's, here's, this is the gospel, the good news of the gospel. That God has first loved you with all his heart, soul, mind, with all he is, he has loved you through the person of Jesus Christ. And therefore, don't miss this, our love to him is a response because we know he loves us so much. Always a response because we're accepted in Christ Jesus, not to be accepted. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. May he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ who lives in us, to whom be the glory forever and ever. It always comes back to you, Lord Jesus. Not our obedience, not our doing and not doing, not our law keeping, but you and what you have accomplished for us. And even now what you accomplish through us, you working in us that which is pleasing in the Father's sight. To you all glory. Amen and amen. If you would like someone to pray with you, would you make your way up to the front as we dismiss now? Just come on up and we'll have someone to pray with you. God bless.